So I first wrote this sermon back in 2018 and I gave it the title Let It Go because that song from the Disney movie Frozen was pretty much everywhere at the point. Now I, I hope that the parental PTSD from that time has hearing it ten times a day might have failed, you know, faded a little by this point, but if it hasn't, I'm sorry. Um, but it'll make sense later as an illustration of uh, the theme of our sermon today. Now, I've done this little test in sermons before, but it's a nice little self-awareness exercise for us. So I'll do a quick test. Now, the glass on the screen there at the front is about 50% at capacity. Now, the engineers here don't tell me if it's slightly more or whatever. It, let's just say, for the purpose of argument, it's 50%. Now, who here would say that it's half full? Okay, who here would say that it's half empty? Okay, so the first crew, uh, you probably didn't, you probably missed what I was saying. The first crew are our optimists, the glass is half full. Who says it's half empty? I'll I'll, I'll put my hand up to that, it's a bit scary to say you're a pessimist, but you know, there there are a lot of us around. You're my people, anyway. Now, so I say this because I think that the 2020s have been a bit of a decade for pessimists. Finn, you got the next slide? Got a bad feeling about things. Things are not really going so well this decade, are they? We started with major bushfires and we rolled straight on to the pandemic and then the war in Ukraine began. Climate change seems to be ramping up pretty fast and 80s fashion seems to be back in style. So, okay, it's a pessimistic time to be alive just a sense overall that things are not going well. Um, You know, I think a lot of people expected that the world would be a better place than it is by now. Um, Then that's not a new feeling, though. There's always been bad things going on and people feeling bad about them. But I think it's very hard nowadays to find people who are genuinely optimistic about the future. Perhaps Collingwood fans would be one of the few at the moment. Um, Yeah, they talk about politics, that's real, real sport. Um, now, today's reading is part of Ecclesiastes that focuses on our attitude to the state of the world. Um, I think whether we are optimists or pessimists. So, so you've got a next slide. As we, in the previous weeks, we've looked at the wisdom of the teacher of Ecclesiastes in our pursuit, in, on the pursuit of wealth and other dreams. And his advice that we should realise that the things we strive after are often hevel or hebel. Um, uh, it's a, a word that means, it's, yes, it's a meaningless smoke or a bubble, something that has no substance or enduring meaning. He says, even if we get what we want, it won't satisfy us. Now, Ecclesiastes is a very pessimistic book. The glass is never more than half empty and probably a lot less. And that means I enjoy it a great deal when I read it. Um, and the passage today, as you might have heard, is about as pessimistic as you can get. And I think the challenge that Ecclesiastes gives us today is about our attitude towards hope and happiness in life and whether we're sufficiently realistic in our grasp of the way the world works. In chapters 6 and 7, he offers a critique of the goal of happiness as something we should strive after if we're to be wise. Okay, so we go to our next slide. um, Go back to a couple more. Thanks, mate. One more. Two more. Another more. Oh, there we are. That's it. So the pursuit of happiness is famously mentioned in the United States Declaration of Independence as a fundamental human right. Um, But the teacher of Ecclesiastes would suggest that in practice, this is not a wise view of life under the sun. Happiness is meaningless, he would say, or hevel, as much as money or possessions are, and pursuing it is not true wisdom. 
And this is not because he thinks it's bad to be happy or it's not possible to enjoy life. You know, we've been reminded several times in this series so far that Ecclesiastes actually encourages us to enjoy the good things in the world, to eat, to drink, and be merry, he says, to not put off enjoyment until later because later may be too late. As we'll see, however, the point that he makes in this passage is that the world doesn't actually work in such a way that makes it easy for us to be happy or to be happy for very long. The fundamental experience of the world is that it's a place of tragedy, it's a place of absurdity and a place of frustration. And the pursuit of happiness is blocked by the tragedy of this world and its indifference to whether or not we achieve happiness. So if you go, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 6, in verse 1, he says, well, this fact is something that weighs heavily on humankind. We find it really hard to deal with when things happen that show that the world is not interested in our happiness. So things that are absurd and tragic. His example, if you look at verses 2 to 6 of chapter 6, he says, is of a man who has everything that happiness would seem to require. He's got wealth, he's got possessions, he's got honour, he's got a large family and a long life, but never gets to enjoy it. So he works hard his whole life without rest and he dies just before he can enjoy anything. There's a tragic end to this man's pursuit of happiness. There was a popular song in the 90s which is called Ironic by Alanis Morissette, which many of you know. Do you know this song? Have you heard it? Yes. It was all about that kind of situation. The first line of that song says, An old man turned 98. He won the lottery and died the next day. Now, of course, many people have pointed out over the years, this isn't technically ironic. It's just unfortunate or sad or tragic. Um, but it is exactly Hevel. It is meaningless. It is Hevel. And this sort of thing, the teacher would say, happens all the time. Life doesn't turn out the way that fits with our plans. And this is the sort of thing the teacher has in mind when he talks about life. And he says this experience of absurdity in life is so aggravating that from some points of view it might be better to pass through life into death immediately without having to go through all the toil in between. And that kind of restful oblivion is the best that some people might hope for. And it would be better than the frustrating experience of life that weighs heavily on us. And so he says the pursuit of happiness is undone by the experience of frustration and absurdity in life. But also, he says, it's undone by the fact that this pursuit of happiness, in when we do it, the satisfaction of it actually just keeps eluding us. As we thought about last week, when it comes to the good things in life, the more that we have, the more we want. In verse 7, he says, everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. In verse 9, he talks about our roving of the appetite that goes beyond what we can see in front of us. It's a chasing after the wind satisfaction eludes us even as we pursue it. Um, most real happiness comes in the moment and then we get swept away by life to the next thing and pursue another form of happiness. And so happiness is a never-ending pursuit. So the teacher's conclusion is that it's hard to define then what a happy life actually is. In verse 12 he says, for who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow. So life as we experience it is not in harmony with the pursuit of happiness. So we've got our next slide then. His wisdom then in chapter 7 is about our response to this reality. He would say that on balance, the acceptance of sadness is a more wise and realistic response to life than the pursuit of happiness. The heart of it is there in verse 2 of chapter 7. 
For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. So in the big perspective on life, he says death is more significant than birth. A funeral or the house of mourning is more significant than a wedding or the house of feasting. And he says, finally, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. He says, the most wise and balanced response to the tragedy of life is sadness at this tragedy and at the loss and the inevitable passing away of everything. That's pessimism. Now, I'll say in a moment why I don't think that's the whole story for Christians, but let's think for a moment about how we respond to this view of life. Do you, do you agree with it? What do we do if we do agree with what Ecclesiastes is saying? What do you do when you live in a sad and tragic world where, if we have our eyes open, we must take the reality of death to heart? There are a few ways that people respond, and I'll look at two of two different ones and, and how what Jesus might say to each of those ways. So the first is what our glass-half-full people might tend to do, our optimists among us. So the optimists might turn away from this view and embrace positivity, move towards it. And I think that's the tendency of our whole culture, pretty optimistic in general. Western culture is built on a fundamental belief in progress and possibility. We are culturally optimistic. We believe that if we just learn more about the world through science, if we live rationally and peacefully, if we pursue happiness, we can look forward to a better world. An example is the stories of Star Trek. You know, in these stories, most of the pain and suffering in human life has been eliminated by technological progress. That's the whole theme of the, the series. So you might do that. Or you might turn away from suffering if you're an optimist and say, carpe diem, so I'm going to seize the day, I'm going to enjoy life as much as I can in the face of absurdity and death. Don't dwell on the sadness. And this is what we call the power of positive thinking. But of course, the problem we can all see with this is um, if you ignore sadness, we can't deal with reality, which is often sad. Particularly, we can't acknowledge when things are tragic. We can't grieve them because we don't want to. And in the end, it actually thinks it makes it hard to deal with the disappointment in life. And perhaps that's why we find it so perplexing in our culture when the world doesn't seem to be getting better when the 2020s are not better than the 2010s, um, and when things seem to be getting worse, because the world in our head of expectations is different from the real world. Now, Jesus faced head-on this overly optimistic view of life, the idea that we can pursue happiness if we just try really hard, we'll get it. So let me read to you from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 24 to 17, verse 5. You want the new slide, next slide, please, Finn? Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? So firstly, Jesus is saying that life, the life we've been given is for a lot more than the pursuit of happiness. Actually, happiness particularly the kind of desperate, grasping happiness that we're talking about, can be a barrier, he says, to true life. Jesus was offering his disciples a new life on the other side of death and to embrace that life now in the light of the cross, to give up the pursuit of happiness but rather pursue the kingdom of God. And that's not something I think the teacher of Ecclesiastes could anticipate because he didn't know about the kingdom of God that there might be a deeper wisdom than his pessimism. 
this is a genuinely new thing under the sun, the cross. And it, so it calls us to a new way of living. And to follow Jesus may mean that we are called to give up the pursuit of happiness altogether, and even perhaps for some people to give up normal and acceptable enjoyment of life for something greater and more meaningful. He says it's a paradox. When you give up your life, when you lose it, when you let it go to follow Jesus, you can get it back in a deeper form forever. And actually suffering on the cross is where we meet God and we become more like him. So for the optimists among us, this is a word that life may not respond in the kingdom to our optimism. So that's, that's Jesus' word to optimists, I think. So next slide is the second view is the opposite of this in dealing with sadness and tragedy, which is to give in to extreme pessimism. So this is to say, yes, the world is so meaningless, it is so absurd, happiness is such an illusion, that the only response is to abandon the world together and give up, because things are no good. Give up. Retreat into a little cocoon and watch Netflix all day. Or go and live as a hermit up in the mountain and never see others again. So people who embrace this either become very cynical and bitter about life, or embrace a philosophy that says the world is really an illusion and we're better off not trying or engaging with it at all. Arguably, this is what Elsa was saying in Frozen when she's saying, let it go, you know. I'm leaving the world behind. It's disappointed me. I'm going to abandon my false expectations of happiness. I'm going to stop trying, and I'm going to find my peace in the mountains. You know, the world never bothered me anyway. Um, the cold never bothered me anyway. Um, Christians have done this often too. They've taken that attitude by insisting, I think, often as on heaven as an escape from the terrible world we live in after we die. There's an old hymn called I'll Fly Away, which you might have heard. It's all about this idea. Some of the words of that hymn say, when the shadows of this life have gone, I'll fly away. Like a bird from prison bars has flown, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Now, that's an understandable response to the pain of life. But again, Jesus challenges that. It's not about flying away. There's more to the Christian life than flying away from sadness into heaven when we die. And we can see this in the story immediately after the one that I just read to you. So if you look at Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 5, let me read to you what it says. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So this is a story called the Transfiguration. That means a change, a transformation. And it's about the revelation of the divine nature of Jesus and the glory of God that he had in him and which came through him as a human being. For the disciples, it was a revelation and a taste of the kingdom of God. So the, I think the transfiguration shows us that giving over our life to Jesus is not a denial of the world or a rejection of it, and it's not about hating life, and it's not about being gloomy. The story shows what our life is for. So the world is certainly often a gloomy and dark place, and we are surrounded by Havel, by mist and uncertainty, but the light of God has come into that mist, the glory of God in Jesus. 
And the point of the transfiguration is to affirm for the disciples that God's life is present within humanity, even now, in Christ. We weren't made for the pursuit of happiness. We were made for this, for the transfiguration, to be filled with the life and the glory of God's spirit forever. The world is not a hopeless place. And that glory is present in our world now, even if we can't see it, as the disciples couldn't until it was revealed. So, of course, we are not to reject the world and not to turn away from it. So, in summary, I think that Christians should not be optimists or pessimists either. I think we should be hopeful realists about the world. Um, I think there is, there is happiness in the, in the world and there is sadness and tragedy. And neither of those things should define our response to the reality of the world we live in. We can take them as they are, I think. Be happy in good times, be sad in bad times, but always hopeful. So I think the teacher, even as a pessimist as he was, would have been happy to hear the words that the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, verse 18, as he reflected on our hope as Christians. Got that slide, please. He said, I consider... Sorry, Fina. Thank you. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that God will reveal in us, or to the glory that will be revealed in us. So as Christians, we're hoping for something we haven't yet seen. And in verse 25, Paul gives an encouragement to optimists not to run too far ahead. He says, but if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. So we have a lot to be thankful for, whether we're optimists or pessimists. In the midst of our world, which, yes, does seem absurd and meaningless, Jesus has revealed a light of glory in the purposes of God, in, them, in our midst. And this takes up the story, I think, of all of our lives into something that is better than optimism and more realistic than pessimism because it's based on God himself and his love. So the glass, I think, is not half full. It's not half empty. Jesus is saying it will be overflowing forever and ever in our hope. So let me pray, and then we'll be going to pray for our world as well. So let's commend that to God today. We thank you, Lord, for this word, that we must face the world as it is in its light and darkness, its hope and sadness, and we pray that we would grasp onto the reality of the kingdom of God in our midst in hopeful anticipation of the glory that is going to be revealed in us and through us in your plan. I pray that that would become a reality in our lives today as we go out from here. In Jesus' name, amen.